I mean, I think one of your questions later on is like, what's our biggest piece of advice for people in the business? I tell people two things all the time. Meet people in person or get on the phone, worst case scenario, don't send emails and uh-huh. be just get in the business. And if you're good, opportunities are going to present itself. Yeah. 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 And to that same question, I mean, my answer to that is it's knowledge, experience, and exposure is what I tell everybody. And that's what you have to focus on. And there's too many other people in this business that focus on what leads to that. And they put the the success in front of knowledge, experience, exposure. And if you actually focus on those three main components, then the fourth will come in a major way. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it would mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. All right, I'm pumped to have Dustin Bowles, Stephen Bailey with me today. Uh, They're two good friends of mine, but they're also two of the smartest guys I know in industrial, especially in Texas. I've been grateful to work with them on our last two large transactions. And so today we're going to talk about kind of that world and what's going on in the industrial market. Stephen, welcome. Dustin, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Big fans of the podcast. So Appreciate it. Can't believe we're on. Big fans of the podcast. Big fan of Chris and the four team. They've been very good to us. So we're super, super excited to share a little knowledge today. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun. Before we get into it, let's just give a little bit of two-minute background of how you got into the industry and kind of got to where you are today. Uh, yeah, from my perspective, um, I, I went to school at TCU and it was... Actually, a uh, a blessing. I was parents weekend and I started talking to some random guy and that random guy ended up being Mark Gibson. And uh, he told me at the end of the night to call him and I looked him up the next day and my initial thought was, oh, shoot, what did I say to him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I left him a voicemail. I hope he deleted it immediately because I was nervous as hell to leave him a voicemail. And he set up an interview for me after my sophomore year of college. And I interned with HFF. And from there, I started on the debt and equity side as an intern, transitioned in the investment sales side and um, and went full time right after I graduated from TCU. But uh, I give my... Um, I give a lot of respect to Mark and owe him significantly for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, you've always said that. Dustin? Yeah, so I took a little bit of a different route. I'm from a small town in Kansas, so I didn't have the uh, the real estate hotbed at Dallas when I went to KU. So I got in. I had a family friend that worked at a corporate tenant rep group. I interned there. And then they ultimately offered me a job as Fisher & Company, and I moved to Dallas, started working on a lot of large corporate tenant rep work that was primarily focused on industrial. So Alcoa, Conair, Certainty, so a lot of extruded aluminum products and construction material projects. So those were kind of my big clients. And so I worked my way through a couple of different companies. I had a finance background. And so after four years in the tenant rep side, decided I want to move to capital markets, moved over to capital markets and been doing that for 13 years since then. So 
pretty fortunate. We've had a good run. Lucky to be in Dallas. But, you know, I joke with Bailey. I say they put all the dumb kids in industrial because it's the easiest thing to underwrite out of school. So <laughs> we fortunately have just ended up at the right place at the uh, the right time. And to Bailey's credit, he gets a lot of grief because he's the last and maybe the only two-time intern at HFF. <laughs> Uh, definitely the last. They saw what happened with the first. So, <laughs> and y'all <laughs> no became more. partners when when JLL bought HFF. Yeah, so I call it the forced marriage. Yeah. So you know, uh, me and Bailey got partnered up when the announcement was made. I believe that was March of what would that have been twenty nineteen. Yep, March of twenty nineteen. It closed July of twenty nineteen. July fourth weekend, I think, is actually when it closed. But I remember I was in LA actually on a business trip that day when it got announced, and I had to charge my cell phone like three different times because the phone was just ringing off the hook from five in the morning to like seven o'clock at night. So I've been very fortunate. Stephen's been a great partner. We've had a very good run, and so it's been a very good kind of quote unquote forced marriage. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I would say we didn't even know each other that well before the merger. I mean, we would be on client trips together and interact a little bit, yeah. but nothing on a personal level. And it's been it's been a fun run, as Dustin mentioned. So y'all are I mean, just being with y'all, y'all are one of the best partnerships I've seen. Clearly y'all got lucky. I know it probably could have gone the other way if it wasn't a it's a forced marriage, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So how would you describe what you do and what markets do y'all cover? So I think broadly, we were talking about this before the podcast started. We primarily set in the IA bucket of the JLL Capital Markets uh, platform. So 60 to 70% of our business is focused on just strictly investment advisory or just investment sales. And then we end up doing a vast majority of the equity-related transactions in the industrial space. And that can be a function of recapping existing portfolios so the operating partner can stay in. It's a function of raising JB equity on development deals or placing equity with operating partners as they're out looking to buy space. So we do that kind of all over the country. You know, we have probably six to seven programmatic equity raises in the market nationally. So we specialize kind of day to day in the South Central region. So let's call it Kansas City and South, but end up doing a lot of transactions with other groups outside of our markets in the equity world and also on the sales side as clients take us to different markets. So, you know, Regionally, we operate with kind of what I call the five families. We have our kind of Midwest guys. We have our South Central team, which Stephen and I sit in. We got a partner down in Houston, Trent Agnew. And then we have our West Coast team, our Southeast team, and our Northeast team. And are y'all talking pretty regularly or do you keep it kind of to your team? No, no we talk yeah. on a on a daily basis. We have we have weekly calls with our with our markets. Yep. Just so everybody is in tune with who's bidding on what, where things are pricing, we're always sharing real time feedback. Um, but and then we have a monthly national call. Um, the good thing is we're all so close that if I see a someone calling from another market, I mean we're going to answer it nine times out of ten in the first ring. And at the level that y'all are operating on. Like so much of that, I mean, just hearing that you guys get to call people from all over the country, you know what's going on like in markets before, you know, even people like me know what's going on in a market. Um, you know, I get people even leading into this podcast like, why wouldn't they just go do this on their own? 
is like speak a little bit to the like what JLL brings to the table and like why you're able to do the things you're able to do uh, because of the platform that you have. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, a, a little bit of technology driven, obviously, JLL likes to brand themselves as a technology company. But to Stephen's point, the biggest benefit of being a big platform like that is the information sharing. Yeah. So, you know, we're tracking, we're getting real life data on where stuff's priced in Atlanta, where stuff's priced in the Inland Empire. And a lot of what our product and our knowledge base is benchmarking off of other markets and where they historically have been. So as we're getting new comps in these other markets, there's no reason that Dallas shouldn't be moving in lockstep with Atlanta. It's really starting to trend more like a Jersey in LA from a tier one perspective. So just having access to that knowledge, it takes us so much uh, more dangerous, helps us push pricing and kind of maximize value for our clients. So, you know, obviously JLL, you don't get as good as splits, right? But you get access to a lot more information. It allows us to be a lot better educated. Really, we win a lot more deals just with the bandwidth and the platform behind us. Yeah, yeah. it's the knowledge. It's yeah. the knowledge is power. And that's purely it. Um, it's fun when we can have conversations like with clients like yourself, where we hear of a deal that you're, you're buying and you're going, unbelievable. Yeah. We're selling this deal next door that's trading for a basis that's way different from where you're able to purchase this. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it too, you shift to a smaller shop and you know this, starting your own business and running a business. You shift out of the deal flow and you become an HR manager. You become a people manager yeah. more than being in the deal flow. And personally, I like being in the middle of deals. That's yeah. what I'm passionate about. Managing people and training people <laughs> is not my passion at all. So <laughs> I try to stay away from that as much as possible. The reason I'm not on the hiring committee at JLL, so <laughs> I'll stay in front of the deals. So yeah. yeah, keep yeah. Dustin away from HR. I would say that just like the working on the two deals that we've sold with y'all, but we're always talking to y'all. It's it's always really impressive to me how. I, it seems like y'all are always a step ahead. Like y'all know what's going on in the market. And there's a lot of great brokers out there, but I've told a lot of people, uh, especially over the last couple of years, like, you know, and, and it's not just y'all, but the, the training that y'all have and the way you're able to see, you're just very like in tune. And so I've said like, I would never go to market and sell a deal that I was not bringing a broker that had that type of knowledge uh, to the game. And I think that's changed a lot because like technology and access to information and now that fragmented market is now becoming consolidated where teams are getting bought up. And um, yeah, I just think it's like super invaluable. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is just tracking information. You can track stuff through technology devices, through CoStar and the other online, but a lot of it is still a human touch. Yeah, It's being out in front of the real estate. It's understanding trends. It's being able to read people and where they can really push you on pricing. What really are the hot button items? You can't do that in front of a computer screen. You got to pick up the phone. I mean, I think one of your questions later on is like, what's our biggest piece of advice for people in the business? I tell people two things all the time. Meet people in person or get on the phone. Worst case scenario, don't send emails and uh -huh. be just get in the business. And if you're good, opportunities are going to present themselves. Yeah. 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 And to that same question, I mean, my answer to that is it's knowledge, experience, and exposure is what I tell everybody. And that's what you have to focus on. And there's too many other people in this business that focus on what leads to that. And they put the, the success in front of knowledge, experience, exposure. 
And if you actually focus on those three main components, then the fourth will come in a major way. I think the other thing too, is we have a lot of competitors that kind of just primarily play in the sales world with doing so much equity and working through governance on that and different structures. And there's just a lot more nuance in a transaction like that. It gives us a lot, much more creative lens on structuring through issues on the sales side that we overcome on other facets of the real estate world. So what's like a job that y'all will work on the equity side? A group comes to you that's saying, we want to go buy X amount in DFW or like, how do those transactions? It's more like? on the development side. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, a guy will say, hey, hey I'm leaving a big shop. I'm going to go out. I'm going to buy a site or put a site under contract. I need to go raise LP equity. So they come to us and a lot of these guys are developers by trade or they're deal, by tra deal guys by trade. And so they'll come to us and say, hey, what are the different things we need to be thinking through in our LP docs so we're protected and everybody's getting a fair deal? And how can I help maximize my returns and then limit my exposure as I go do my first deal? A lot of these guys aren't carrying the balance sheet to go put up liquidity and net worth on their first deal. So then we have to find a co-GP partner to do the deal with them or find an LP partner that's going to provide kind of a synthetic debt piece that will take on some of that debt exposure and not have to make them go to the bank and put up that balance sheet or bring in a co-GP partner to put up the balance sheet. So let's just go a little deeper in that. What So a guy leaves the shop, he doesn't have the balance sheet, but maybe has the chops and the experience. Like, what does that process look like? How long does it take to find a partner? And like, what are the critical items that make partnerships work? Well, we're, like I said, we're very lucky to be in the industrial space right now, but on the development <laughs> side, everybody, everybody's got money. Yeah, everybody's got money. But, you know, it's, it's as nuanced <laughs> as it's ever been on the development side. Cities are very difficult to deal with. Costs have run more in the last six to 12 months than we've ever seen. I mean, we've had budgets blow out 25, 30% in a six month period. And, you know, some of that is steel driven, some is commodity driven. It's a shortage of labor. Contractors are really busy. So guys are pushing just overall construction pricing. And then, you know, it's hard to get stuff through the entitlement process. A lot of these sites are very challenging. We've seen land costs do the same thing. You know, we've probably seen every land site double in value since, you know, the beginning of quote unquote COVID since March of last year. So, it's still a very nuanced process because you have to time it up right. You're trying to time up a GMAX on the deal. You're trying to time up land closing. You're trying to time up entitlements if there is entitlement risk on the rezoning or getting your clomer if there's floodplain issues. So they'll go out. It's usually a three to four week kind of marketing process. And then you're looking 45 to 60 days to get through JV docs, especially if it's kind of a newer group that's going through JV docs on the first time on that side of it. And what's, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, but at the end of the day, it, it goes back to the sponsorship on who the developer is, their background, and really it's the site and the dirt in which we're working with. So in like a market like today, most people are coming with a deal already in tow. You're not just going with like an idea or a thesis, like you kind of need a deal. Yeah. I mean, there's another side of the equity business where you may want to move into more of a quote unquote, like let's call it an alternatives within the industrial space, be it a, a low coverage play where you're buying terminal assets or you're buying cold storage facilities. So we've married up operating partners with new capital to go chase and build cold storage. Yeah. So sometimes it's more of a thesis play. And so there's definitely opportunities like that. But if you're a smaller shop, just getting going, usually you have to have the opportunities ready to go before you're going out and getting that LP capital. 
All right, let's talk about like Texas. Let's just start at Texas. How is Texas performing in y'all's world compared to maybe the rest of the country? Like, where is it similar to, and what are things that come to mind when you're thinking of like what's what you're experiencing in Texas? Well, I mean, I think you look at the population growth around us and just how the city has changed from the last three years, five years, 10 years is changing dramatically. And the governance behind it is uh, definitely accretive. And that's what's that's driving the population growth. Um, from a fundamental standpoint, I mean, we're a 6% vacant market on the industrial side. We go head to head against most the other major markets. Um, but you look at where things trade and we're still a fraction of where the coastal markets are 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 selling. And so I from feel like, like a price per foot. On a price per foot, which also means that our rental rates are a fraction of where these same companies that have locations on coastal markets, uh, where they're leasing space, we're still uh, a third of of where those rates are. And so you think of just projected rent growth in these markets. Um, Dallas, I, I think, has the longest way to go by a, by a long shot. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's just land constraints, right? So if you look in Jersey, you look in LA, Inland Empire, you look in Miami, those are much more land constrained markets. And I tell people in Texas, we're not land constrained yet, but we're land challenged. Yeah. You know, all the easy sites are done. So, you know, there's 100 plus developers we track in DFW alone that are out actively looking for industrial sites. And everybody thinks it's an easy game. You just get in, you go buy a piece of dirt and you build a building because it's a concrete box. But these sites and the challenges these developers have to overcome, it's really gotten difficult in the last, let's call it two to three years as all the easy stuff is gone. So now a lot of these sites have significant offsite costs. So you're either bringing utilities, you're upgrading roads, you're having to do all these things the sites used to have to not do. And now everything is also taking place on the peripherals. So you're building in Denton now, you're in Midlothian, you're South Dallas, you're Forney, you're Westside, Fort Worth, you're down in Carter and those markets. So the infill stuff, like Steven said, there's not any more of it being built. There's going to be some conversion, there's going to be product added, but not to to the degree of where the leasing and the absorption is taking place. So you're going to push to the peripherals. So all your infill product, a lot of the stuff you've been buying over the years, is going to see massive rent growth. So I think that's the thing that shifted, especially the most in the last six to 12 months is just overall conviction in rent growth. We're seeing large core funds and investment managers that always kind of looked at Dallas as maybe a lower tier, tier one market, moving us to the top of the list from a tier one perspective. They all want to be over allocated to Texas industrial, specifically Dallas, and then probably Austin closely thereafter. And so those same groups may have been underwriting, you know, one and a half to 2% rent growth in Dallas. Now they're underwriting four to 5%. Some are writing six, six, five on a wow. reoccurring basis on overall rent growth and even on new class A core product. So that's the big fundamental shift because you look back on Dallas, I think Dallas's first lease that I can remember that had fixed bumps, we used to be a flat lease market. So you'd sign a, a 250 rent as a tenant and your rent was 250 for five years, no fixed bumps in the lease was 2007 or 2008 down in South Dallas on a big builder suit that uh, I think Prologis, I think it was Rob Huffnance that actually did the deal, but it kind of shifted our whole mindset and mentality in the market. Yep. 
All right. Do you have any idea like how much capital is trying to get into Texas right now? Like you have any statistics of like how many billions of dollars of equity is trying to be placed in industrial in Texas? It's it feels like it's infinite yeah. right now. I don't have the the number in front of me or in the top of my head, but it it's new groups that are going into this space every single day. Yeah. And it's are they are they converting from like they used to play in another asset type or they're just coming out of the dust? So so if you look historically industrial, just look at the pension vehicles because there's the sovereigns, there is the investment fund managers, there's all these public and private REITs, public or the private REIT sector is going crazy with B REIT. You're seeing it with Starwood, you're seeing it with Invesco, with iREIT, all those guys that are raising money like crazy. I think B REIT's doing, I don't know, a couple billion a month now. In that in that subset, I didn't see the latest stats, but it continues to go up every month. And that's they want to be forty to fifty percent invested just in industrial and B REIT. So then they have four or five other buckets that they're buying through. So you tack all that on, and then you look at what the pensions are doing. Historically, they were like allocated eight to nine percent of the real estate allocation was allocated to industrial. Now they're all trying to be 32, 33% of the real estate allocation. Real estate allocations used to be seven to 8% of their total holdings. Now guys are pushing 16, 17, 18% on allocations for real estate and all these pension yeah. vehicles. So that's, you know, Nysters, that's Copers, that's Michigan State teachers, that's all those groups that are out investing more and more capital into A, just real estate in general, and then a heavier focus on industrial. So go layer that on. Is there a percentage right now of new development that's like how much of it is spec versus a tenant in tow, or is it most of it right now spec? Like, is well, there a- so you know, the tenant in tow is really a build a suit, right? Yeah. So I think closer thing we track is probably pre leased activity. Mm-hmm. So deals that are leased up before they deliver. Right. So right now we're tracking forty ish percent pre leased in a market like Dallas. Historically, we're like eighteen to twenty percent pre lease. So a lot of that is there's been a little bit of supply cut off in COVID. So there was a lot of projects that were put in pause, you know, March, April, May, June, even July of last year. So there's been a little bit of a shortage in deliveries and there's been a delay in new starts because of delays with municipalities being slow to approve stuff and then just cost issues and then a delay in steel delivery too as well that everybody's having to build into their budget. So there's going to be truly a lack of available space. And that's why there's such kind of passion around rent growth. So, I mean, you look at some of these markets like GSW, DFW airport, there's just not vacancy on the ground for these tenants to go lease. So you as a landlord, you can be pushing rents, you know, 15, 20 cents, almost a month right now in some of those submarkets. Well, talking about the Ford for a second, are a lot of these people going in thinking that they are going to uh, spec build and sell on a Ford, or is that just an option they're making like through the build process? How are these things being set up to yeah. the? Because it's you're seeing them everywhere. So I mean, you're seeing a lot of Fords in the market. Fords a pretty advantageous way for a developer to go kind of take risk off the table. So you get an institutional investor to come in to agree the to buy the building. And with that, it's what I call a bankable kind of transaction. They'll put up a couple different security deposits through funding, and you'll take that to, let's call it a local to regional uh, bank, 
and you'll be able to get a loan at probably 85 to 90% of loan to cost. So they're putting more equity in the deal, but it's a safer transaction. So their multiple is not as big as like a 95.5, but they're not having to take the leasing risk. So as soon as the building delivers, that investor is owning the asset. So it's a way for investors to get product, control the product. It helps them buy down their basis long-term. As the developer, you don't have to go bring in that LP partner and split profits on a forward. So you get to keep all the profits. You make about the same amount of money as you would taking it through lease up, selling it stabilization, but not having to take all that risk. So it's just a, it's a value metric for these developers to go get their profits sooner rather than later. And a lot of these developers are having to spend more money than they've ever spent on pursuit and upfront capital costs. And then just, you know, offering more to talent. I mean, there's a lack of developer talent in the market because there's so many people out looking right now. Are the TI packages that these folks are now offering going up, not just because costs are going up, but because the sophistication of what's going on inside the buildings is starting to dramatically increase? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a cost issue, right, first and foremost. And yeah. then B, you know, most of these guys are HVAC in their warehouse now. So we used to never get HVAC warehouse rent fully capped. Yeah. And now everybody looks at HVAC warehouse as a positive and they're capping the full rent. It's, you know, we call it e-commerce ready space yeah. out in the market. So people are just building out, like you said, more sophisticated spaces with mezzanine, more office, uh, more kind of shipping and handling equipment, more kind of robotics, all these different things. And so you factor all that in, you factor in, you know, upgrades and lightings, a lot of guys that are looking to go green in the space, you know, there's going to be a big evolution in the green world, but you know, nobody can really describe or define what a green building is, but that's coming. You're seeing corporate mandates from a ton of the fortune 500 tenants that are our friends and brothers on the tenant rep side deal with. And, you know, tenants, haven't really been able to pay or aren't really paying for it in Texas yet, but there's going to be a point where they make that strategic decision as a corporation that they're going to be able to eat those costs and pass it through to the, to the consumer. What, what would those be? I mean, most basic one is solar panels right now. Yeah. You're just not seeing that in Texas, yeah. but that'll be the the easiest thing for everybody to go do. Is that because nobody can get paid? Like as a developer, you're not getting paid to put solar on. So yeah, you're, not, you're not getting the rent factor to go put solar on. And, you know, you get it in other markets from government subsidies and some tenants are willing to pay for it in a California or a Florida, but it just hasn't made its way to Texas yet. Okay. Let's talk about like the types of tenants that are leasing these buildings. Are these all e-commerce tenants? Is it all Amazon? Like, is it all across the board? Like what's the e-commerce is all anybody wants to talk about last miles. All anybody wants to talk about who's filling all these buildings up. I mean, our biggest sector is retailers, e-commerce, and 3PL groups, right? Yeah. So it's it's getting product and it's getting a lot of the product that used to come through the big box stores and the smaller retail shops direct to consumers. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's speed of access. It's accessing just households, middle to upper income labor. So, I mean, you've seen Amazon obviously go on a tear. They, I think last year they did 40-ish percent of our large leases in the market. We call our large leases kind of 500 and above uh, nationally. So they're going to slow down this year. They're not near as active. They're more focused on their delivery stations yeah. right now. So you're what seeing- 
the, your delivery stations are essentially their low coverage plays. So these okay. are high throughput facilities where they may run 300, 400, 500 vans out of. They want to have one probably every 10 to 15 miles spread out across the Metroplex. So they're easily accessing the household. And so a lot of your product comes from what they call their sort facilities or distribution facilities into these smaller e-commerce or AMZL facilities, and they'll distribute out from there to the household. That's the Amazon last mile. And so those are those critical mass, or not, sorry, critical location facilities for them. And so you're going to see them in super infill locations. What's what's going on in the market with relation to capital gains going up or the fear that it's going up? Is that going to create a ton of activity these last, this last six months or are people just kind of like, yeah, it's eight percent? I mean, a lot, a lot of our industrial sector is dominated by large investment managers, Odyssey Core vehicles, or sovereigns that are long dated holds. So they're not really flipping in and out of projects as yeah. much. The the people it affects the most are the smaller kind of local operators and aggregators that are more promote driven which are going to be, I think, more sensitive. You're going to see some sales this year as guys look to flip out of stuff and go lock in profit. And really kind of that merchant developer that's out doing deals who gets paid a promote after the building delivers. Yeah. So those are the two biggest subsets that it's affecting and kind of driving decisions on. A lot of your LP partners or your larger institutions, it's kind of an afterthought to them right now. Yeah. I mean, we've seen an uptick in activity just because of it. And it's a lot of it is, to Dustin's point, coming from the private side on the sellers, yeah. but just knowing that the institutional capital on the back end is still super hungry, that it's, they have no, it's not going to affect anything on the back end. Are y'all sourcing a lot of your clients? Like, does it come through the jail? Like how, cause y'all know everybody, how do you meet everybody? And how are you like, a lot of it come through the JLL platform is a lot of it y'all just talking to people as it, as it happens. I mean, my wife would probably tell you too many dinners and too yeah. many happy uh, hours. Um, my bo- my, body, my body would tell yeah. me the same. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, the JLO platform definitely helps. That's the connectivity, right? So yeah. as, as a guy is moving out of maybe a Florida market or a California market, everybody wants to be in Texas because it's super active right now. So we have a lot of good relationships in those markets where they may send somebody our way that's a new developer or a new buyer. But a lot of it is tracking who's in and out of the space and just building relationships relationships over time. I mean, yeah. it's it, it basic fundamentals. It's a relationship business. And so most of our opportunities, opportunities we're out creating and working through with our you know guys in our office that may have a relationship that may do the debt for a certain group, uh, colon, like with you guys or, or other people in the market, we're just following a track. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when we blast a deal, we're going to track the number of CAs that come in. Yeah. And the number of CAs through the years have has changed dramatically. I mean, we're, we would get 50 CAs on a portfolio. Uh, now we're getting close to 200 CAs. Yeah, and our deal, I mean, our it's deal. nuts. Uh, I mean, we do a really good job of not just calling every single 200 groups on that list, but we're meeting with a lot of those groups. And it's the groups that no one's ever heard of. Yep. If they're local, if they're within a hour drive time, we're going to go see them and we want to hear their story and hear kind of what their strategy is. And we show them a lot of love. And that's why you see a lot of these new groups show up on bid sheets that no one's heard of. And you're going, they just paid a, a four, one cap on a class B deal. Um, who is that? 
And a lot of it is because we actually give them the, the small guys love and they're going well, to be it's, it's helping them build that internal conviction, right? So all everybody has a boss. So you're either going in front of the investment committee, you're going to your LP, who is t- technically not your boss, but you need their money to go buy the deal. So right. getting these guys comfortable with the market and getting them up to speed quicker helps them build conviction to go push their underwriting out in the market. Obviously, they're fact-checking us with local leasing guys and other people in the market because inherently everything everybody thinks we're full of it because we're <laughs> investment sales brokers. But you know, that's that's the value add, right? You get more guys up to speed on where the market is and where it's really moving. And right now it's moving faster than it ever has from a growth perspective, from an activity perspective, from a leasing perspective. You got to spend a lot of time keeping these guys educated because if they're working off old information, then you're not maximizing value. And are the majority of the people buying that are buying, are they companies that only buy marketed deals? So their whole way of thinking about the industry is working with folks like y'all or these people hopping in and out of, I know we don't participate in marketed deals, but well, you, you guys are as good at buying off market deals as anybody. Yeah. But you know, a lot of these guys just don't have, I think the resources or the human capital or a lot of the technology that you guys have set up yeah. and to go be successful in that space. I yeah. mean, that's a, that's a low margin business for some of these guys. Some of these guys are raising funds and they have short dated life to get money out the door. So depends a little bit on what their capital structure is. You know, a lot of the guys we deal with are looking to place money a certain sp- certain period of time and need to get money out the door. So you have a captive audience. And, you know, I would tell you right now, I, th- I think people should be pushing pricing, pushing deals to the market because there's a value add component on kind of creating that competitive field to go get it done. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, a lot of the off-market deals are smaller in nature. Yep. And so marketed deals naturally are just going to be bigger. Yep. And that is how these groups are able to deploy capital. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals. They can go into their portal online, go to their profile, and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place you can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information that's s-e-e juniperquare.com and now back to the show all right what does the dream seller look like and then what does the dream buyer look like? Hard money, bad at DD, and ready to close. Seller, they have all their docs ready when we award the deal. And what does that mean? Uh, have We're going to provide a DD checklist yeah. right when you award it. 
And so it's amazing that that is the hardest part during the yeah. during a deal sometimes is just getting documents. Yep. And so prior to going to the market, kind of look internally and go, hey, what do we have? Here's what a, if I was buying this deal, here's what I would be asking for. Let's already start getting this going. So it's going to be a smooth process for the buyer. Yeah. Um, if you think like an investor as a seller, it, yeah. it helps the process immensely. All right. So like, let's just kind of go through like a routine with a seller. When do y'all usually start talking? Like if you're, if I'm, I think we're about to maybe sell something else this year. When, sh what should we be thinking about? What sh what's our timetables looking like in a market like this? Like from the day I call y'all saying, Hey, I think I want to sell this to like, we're closed. What's all going on and what could make things better and what makes things worse? Well, I'll, I'll start. I mean, well, there'll be deals that will price 15, 20 times yeah. over a five, six, seven, eight, 10 year period. And that's just y'all just taking just, the liberty of just saying, well, a lot of times just working with groups, working with portfolio managers or either asset managers, just so guys know where value is and different things to think through, or they may have a near term role and they may reach out to us and say, Hey, should we structure the lease this way? Is there more value if we do this? Should we hold out? Where, where do you see different things? And so it's an advisory role as much as it just, we're just flipping product in the market. So there's a lot of upfront work that goes into getting these listings before they even hit. Sometimes they're as easy as, hey, getting a phone call, we're ready to go, or we want you to pitch. And this is the first time you've heard or seen the deal. Yeah. But a lot of times there's a back-end story and there's a back-end relationship and back-end knowledge in the asset that's been built up over a couple of years. So you've helped kind of culminate value and build value in the deal. So you're almost trying to decide when to harvest that value. And then once we get the call, Stephen talked through like the, the BOV process, value in it, when to strategically market it, timing, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we get the call, it takes probably two weeks to put together evaluation. Uh, we do a lot of our due diligence on the front end. And so we're very thorough and underwriting the deal. By the time we present a value to you, it feels like we actually know in our mind, we know how to operate it and maybe even potentially not saying y'all, but some sellers operate it better than the way that the current owner yeah. is is handling their own property. And we sell the dream and see what the upside is. Yeah. Um, and so that takes about two weeks. From there, we put together a, an OM, um, assuming we were awarded the opportunity. Uh, and then we're marketing the deal for about three to four weeks right now. Okay. And that timeline has actually probably decreased historically um, because since we the time we get offers has increased. And so yeah. now we're doing three, four rounds, five rounds during a bid process because they're so competitive. Yeah. And that's taken three weeks in some cases. And so it's a drawn out process. And then from there, depending on the deal, it's, it's usually a 30-30 a Thirty day look, thirty day due diligence. Now a core deal can be a twenty five day look and a five day close. Why are those quicker? Just because they're so easy to underwrite. It's there's, yeah, there's a lot less, less moving pieces. pieces. They're newer assets, less kind of capital issues on the newer stuff. Usually a little bit better credit, less leases. So just easier to get your head around a lot of that. Core are those stuff. buyers usually buying all cash and then recapping post yep. close just so they can get it bought quick? Yeah, I mean, they're, or they're, they'll they're put fifty percent debt. Yeah, it's, they'll all be all cash and they'll post close finance. So they can either do that through. Uh, a new facility, maybe a SASB line that they may go pull some assets, take that out to the market. They may take five to six 
stick deals, go get life code debt. There's a lot of different ways guys will, will do that, but everybody's buying all cash. So our biggest metric that really is apples to apples, you'll hear everybody talk kind of cap rates. Really, most of what we're looking at is an unlevered yeah. IRR in the core space right now. So it's usually a 10-year unlevered IRR is the most universal underwriting metric for everybody to look at on a core opportunity. Now on the- you know, And what kinda, is that IRR right now? I mean, historically, we would have said mid fives on a 10 is- pretty aggressive in Dallas and we're seeing high fours now. Wow. Um, so best of the best is kind of high fours in a market like Dallas. Yeah. And then in the B space, the B space is a little bit different because they're looking for a little bit more yield. And so I'll let Steven talk through kind of the, I think there's two key metrics in that space. So you're yeah, looking, the, you're, you're looking at a yield on cost figure. And so stabilize, stabilize yield on cost. And so what that means is in place cap rate could be irrelevant. It's really once you get to the rent roll and you make a lease, what does that figure look like? And you net out the cost to get there. Uh, from there, you're going to continue to grow your uh, grow the cash flow, and it's an IR. It's a levered IR. So you're going to try to maximize leverage through this process on a Class B portfolio, and they're solving now to about. 10 to 12 IRR. We've talked about this, but I'm sure it's the same also in class A. Some buildings are worth more vacant than they are leased <laughs> because the, in a market where everything's moving, you know, the buyer can underwrite it lots of different ways. On, uh, We'll talk about class B. Well, maybe we'll do class B first, but then class A. The deal we just took to market, I think there was 130, 40 folks in the, group, uh, in the data room. I think it yep. was 80% occupied or 76%. What's the dispersion of like how people are underwriting that vacancy in a market that's moving this quick? Is it starting to get wider, which is a seller you're hoping it's like, oh, yeah, really wide or is it staying pretty tight? And then we can ask the same for class A, like is is most people shooting at the same range? Yeah, I mean, vacancy actually right now is your friend, believe it or not. And and if you're encumbered by a longer term lease and it's way below market, that's going to hurt your value. Yeah. And you, with how quick the market is moving, um, you want to be able to get to the rent roll across the board as soon as possible. If you yeah. signed a lease four months ago, you're below market. Yeah. Um, so going out with some vacancy right now as a seller, you don't realize that you're actually going to potentially get greater value going out to market and letting the market underwrite their rental rate projections yep. than if they were to lease it themselves. Yep. Because they might under they might actually shoot themselves in the foot, sign something that they're going, looking at their internal pro forma, going, heck yeah, we just signed an awesome lease, and your buyers and ultimately look at it and go, you you dumbass, what did you just sign? Yeah, yeah. and yep. now I'm encumbered by this for the next five years. Yep. I mean the A space, yeah. I mean that it's probably not as relevant. I mean. Tendency is still your friend on the core deals. Like you get a premium for quality credit and yeah. term, you know, but, you know, we used to tell everybody do a 10, 15 year deal. we got guys that are totally fine buying five and seven year deals because they can get to that next pop quicker. Yep. Allows them to get their, you know, one other time on a 10 year hold. So they, as they're underwriting a six, five, four, three, three or six, six, five, five on their rent growth, they're getting to that growth in year six or year, year eight on the deal. So, 
you know, I think it's being able to access future growth is probably more important than just true vacancy in the core space right now. So here's a dumb question. Amazon, let's just, we'll pick Amazon. They're fun to talk about. They're on a 10-year lease. Why would Amazon ever leave that building even when their renewal is up? Like, well, they have a, they have a pretty low probability of ever leaving. Of ever and leaving. That, that's when you look at the number of facilities they've ever vacated. It's a pretty staggeringly low number for the amount they have nationally. You're talking, you know, probably sub 20, unless there was a strategic reason around the real estate was unfunctional. It was a short-term space. They didn't invest that much money into it. So that's why people are buying a lot of these Amazon deals, almost like a bond investment. There's yeah. a very, very high renewal probability in those deals. And so that's why you see them trade at almost a premium over some of the other deals yeah. because of that higher back end probability of renewal, because they're putting so much money either in their mezzanine space or in their electric charging stations within these AMZLs. There's a heavy, heavy infrastructure cost that they put into these deals. As costs continue to go up, they're going to be hard to replicate. A lot of these locations are going to be hard to replicate in 10, 15, sometimes 20 years as they do re renew and roll those leases. So if we didn't say Amazon, though, maybe just like any million square foot tenant, yeah. are they only really leaving a building because they're leaving a market? Or maybe because they're getting a better rate by moving, you know, a couple miles across town. It just seems like if you're in a million square feet and set up, it's a pain in the ass to. I think there's less tenants moving yeah. over pennies on rent dollars. Yeah. Rent equates to on these big deals, let's say average 500,000 square foot tenant, probably six to 9% of their operating costs in that facility. So your biggest cost, your labor and your transportation costs, right. transportation costs. Like are the them. biggest component of of that. So you look at that and it may just be a function of a shift in their supply chain, a shift in the amount of space they need, which is probably the biggest reason. A lot of these guys are growing. And so they may go from a 300,000 square foot space to a 600,000 square foot space as the market continues to grow or they more, move more product to Dallas and maybe out of Chicago. We've been a big beneficiary of guys moving their logistics operations out of Chicago into Dallas in the kind of central region and maybe having a smaller facility in a Cincy or Columbus because they can access more people in a one-day drive from those markets than they can from Chicago. So they'll move into the high-growth population in Texas and move a smaller facility into Louisville, Cincy, Columbus, or something like that. What about class B? Do you think class B tenants call it sub like 50,000 square foot tenants all the way down to like a 5,000 square footer? Are they more location dependent? Oh, it's very much more location dependent. Yeah. And then what we see in the class B is actually these tenants growing. Yeah. And so they're starting to dip their toe in the 50 to 100,000 square feet, but there's no, there's very little vacancy in, in the sub 20,000 square foot suites. And so no one's spending money to build these new facilities. And that's why you're seeing this extreme rent growth is it's just an underserved market. Well, and most well, of these tenants won't pay more just to be in something nicer. It's just a function of their business. It's all like, location. Right. And a lot of it too, to Stephen's point is, there's not a lot of this product being built in the B space. And that's a function of land pricing on some of these infill B deals. And you realistically could say is 18 to maybe $30 a foot on some of these infill sites. And then you go replicate a 40 to 60 down square foot building and you're looking 100 plus bucks a square foot on just the shell on, and the build out on interior. So they're super expensive buildings go replicate in today's world. So that's why you're not seeing a lot of it built. 
I mean, it's it's virtually there's like no reason to build it and there's no yeah. sites. Um, let's talk about land prices for a little bit. Like when y'all started, I mean, 13, 14 years ago is like cents on the dollar for a piece of land. What's happened to land prices caught in the last 24 months? Yeah, I mean, since COVID, like I said, I think everything's doubled. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, we're seeing and hearing land comps in the mid to upper teens right now in Dallas. That was like multifamily, like five years ago. Yeah, ex exactly. And I mean, even I remember we saw our first $10 land comp probably less than 18 to 24 months ago. And now we're in the mid to upper teens. So land pricing has just gone through the roof and there really hasn't been anything that's changed on any of these sites. Not like these buildings have gotten any more efficient from a coverage standpoint. It's just a function of rent growth has gotten there where guys can justify building that type of a facility on 16 ish, $17 type land. Yeah. And, and I mean, you still those have sites aren't out yeah. there. That's why. And you still have your, you know, your $3, your $4 large tracks out on the peripheries, but those used to be dollar, dollar 50 sites. So like ago. a, $15 site, what are some key attributes that make it a $15 site? Well, it's location. Okay. So it's it's close to population and close to good labor base or close to the freeway. So it's usually in one of our quote unquote infill sub markets. Yeah. And so, you know, it's usually probably a pretty efficient site. It's a site that you're probably getting, you know, you're not getting 32% coverage on, you're hopefully getting 40, 42% coverage on your building. So you may not be doing a max out car park or a max out trailer park facility like you see in some of these South Dallas or Alliance sites. You're doing stuff that's a little bit more efficient for the site so you can get a little bit better coverage and keep your kind of per square foot under the building lower. All right, I'm kind of going back to what we were talking about a second ago, but back to the buyers there. And we've met a ton of them. Even y'all have introduced me to a lot of them, but there's, it's always refreshing to me to meet somebody out of like New York or California or Florida. And they're like, we have this brilliant idea. We're going to start buying industrial in Texas. I'm like, thank God. I thought we were late. I thought like <laughs> we were late. You're just getting started. Um, like seriously, like how how do how do these people with shitloads of money to spend like get into the Texas market? Like well, obviously you can pay more. Yeah. That's one way. I mean, what I, mean, I what I tell groups that are trying to enter the market, your first deal might not be your best deal, but it's the deals that come after. Right. And so plant that flag, get your name in the paper, and yeah. the next deal is going to be the street broker that calls you and goes, "Hey, I just read about the the deal that you just purchased from JLL." I've got a deal that sound that sounds similar. Let's put it in front of you. Yeah, so that's everything in life. That's how you get in the business, right? You just yeah. got to get in deal flow. You got to get your first job and just start going. You're you're not going to land the perfect job the first yeah. time unless you're Stephen Bailey and you intern twice <laughs> at HFF, <laughs> and then you get partnered with me. So we can all be that lucky. But, so, <laughs> uh, I sidetracked. Uh, I love you. Yeah, that was that was too easy. You, you went. You tried to do that. But, you know, it's a lot of its mentality, right? So they look at Dallas and historically, even five, 10 years ago, people were like, oh, the people moving here from with Toyota to Frisco are going to hate DFW, you know, from California. They all move here. I think they retain like 80 or 85% of their employee base. You talk to it. Our tenor rep guys did the deal. You talk to the guys that are still Toyota employees today, and they all love it in Texas. It's just a quality of life. You get these guys that come out of Chicago or New York and LA, and they come to the market and you drive them around and they understand just the, the ease of doing business down here, the growth, the friendliness of everybody. Like they almost just buy in instantly yeah. as soon as they walk off the plane. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I agree. I remember when we first met a few years ago and I was in the camp of like, I don't know why I would have to sell to like prove something to somebody. Can't I just go to somebody and say like, I could sell for this much at this date. Therefore, that would equate to this IRR and this. And you guys said, no, trust me, sell, get your name in the paper. And I can honestly say like selling that first big portfolio we sold was, I didn't know why, but it was a huge kind of needle mover. And so uh, yeah, getting your first flag planted, I guess is huge. But a lot of these companies are saying like, they got to deploy a ton of capital. Um, and so is that usually like hard money day one, the quickest closing period matters. I mean, I know as a seller, I'm looking at price. How quickly are we getting to hard money? It's price 90, 90 to 95% of all decision-making is price. Yeah. And it's just overall quality of the buyer. You know, hard money still has typically some contingencies behind it. You could probably wiggle your way out of. So like it's more of reputation of the buyer and overall price, I think, are the two biggest things that we push on. The the other stuff is all important, but it comes down to reputation and overall price. Yeah. And and the other thing is how they underwrite the deal. And so before we award uh, award the deal, we're going to see how they underwrote it from a CapEx perspective. So we're. We're vetting this buyer going, hey, you might not have underwritten this and you're the same price as buyer B. Well, buyer B has $5 a foot more underwritten in CapEx. We're going with buyer B. Um, So we do, it's not just, hey, we're going to throw a number on the board and hope it sticks. You have to defend it within your underwriting as well. Are there any uh, questions that come to mind if I asked you like, I know on these seller buyer calls, is there any like uh, not obvious questions that you've heard sellers ask buyers? You're like, that's a really good question. Like anything that comes to mind that maybe a seller could think about if they're vetting a buyer? Seller is betting a buyer. Man, they all get really repetitive. They do. Yeah, the, they, they're, yeah. that, they are. On the, on the, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's not a lot that differentiates a lot of these sellers yeah. um, other than just overall reputation and price. I mean, yeah. that's, those are the two things that I continue to go back to. So I don't know. That's a good question. If I think of something, I'll get back to you. You get back to me on that. Yeah. We'll add it in our questionnaire that yeah. we send everybody. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I know we go through like, how'd you underwrite CapEx? How are you underwriting this vacancy? How are you underwriting, you know, lots of the the basics. I didn't know if there was something that some sellers I, asked I, before. It's like, damn, that's a good question. I mean, it's I, always, I it's always the about, approval process. Yeah. It's, it's the approval process that, the buyer is making the decision. Yeah. Yep. Who's making the decision? Is, has it has it been fully approved internally? How do you underwrite it? And I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of as simple as that. Yeah. Going back to a little bit on tenant rep brokers, I know in like the big spaces, unbelievably sophisticated tenant rep brokers. Maybe we would call them that. Uh, working on millions. <laughs> you you, you <laughs> call them that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but as you get down into class B, at like at what threshold is like our tenants really not represented in the market? I mean, who wants to work on a 3,000 square foot industrial lease for three years? I mean, you can't make any money doing that for a living. No. And I mean, you see the age of those tenant rep brokers yep. and they're young. Yep. And so everybody's kind of cutting their teeth in the business at that size. Yep. And I, I think that shows the inefficiencies. Yep. Um, but also the opportunity there. You know, market like Dallas, though, most guys are represented, right? Especially once you start getting over five, 10,000 feet. I mean, it's it's a broker-heavy market. It's a very sophisticated market. Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel like probably once you're over five to seven, your 
you're pushing tenor rep brokers on almost everything. Yep. Okay. All right. What what are you expecting kind of in the next like year to year and a half? Like anything different than what we've got? Is there any crazy numbers that come to mind or just things that you're seeing? Or is it more of the same of what we've been seeing? Well, I mean, three cap pricing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've we've seen a couple (laughs) markets go sub three. Dallas is now in kind of the mid threes from a pricing perspective. So yields have continued to compress. Yeah. Um, I think what you're going to see kind of big driving factors are it'll be a record absorption year. It'll be a record kind of capital markets trade year. So we'll be, you know, I would guess pushing 130 to 140 billion in total U.S. transactions right now. Um, So you're going to see more product get taken off the shelves. You're going to see less space for these guys to lease and you'll see record rent growth and record number of deals get done. Are, are any, is anybody having trouble uh, hiring labor in the warehouses or um, like are you seeing tenants that are struggling to find labor like there is in a lot of other industries? I mean, labor is always an issue and yeah. has been an issue for a long time. So, you know, a lot of groups are doing little things and trying to offer different packages or providing a better quality of workspace or HVAC in their house, their warehouse. So there's different things that uh, labor's doing. And I mean, labor will drive to get to a better working condition and a better wage. So the average warehouse worker in Dallas, for example, will drive 27 minutes to work. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can get a long ways in a lot of those warehouse markets that aren't as congested along 20 and 30 and 35 W or 820 or 635 or some of those loops. Can you speak at all? We don't have to talk about who or name names, but some of the cap, like what you're seeing debt come in and the pricing and more for like a listener that's like me or maybe our size. We always think we have a cheap cost of capital and then it's like, but then you talk to these guys and they're yeah, like L basically borrowing. Yeah. <laughs> what what is any kind of loans come to mind? Again, we don't have to talk about specific deals or who, but like where is pricing coming in for the big boys on the debt side? Yeah. I mean, if you're a core vehicle, you're looking probably 50 to 60% max leverage, sometimes 40. Yeah. So you're probably looking life co, you're pushing hopefully full term IO, and you're probably all in coupon is plus or minus two right now, maybe low twos. Uh, sometimes high ones. So it kind of depends on overall quality and makeup of the portfolio. Biggest issue you start to run into is your debt service coverage ratios. You start buying these lower caps. So the other piece of the bucket that a lot of these guys are pooling together is what we call a, a SASB execution, which is actually a single, what is that? A single asset securitized back security. Okay. Um, but it's not really a single <laughs> asset. Sometimes it'll be a single borrower. So they may go pool 300, 400 million yeah. of assets or six, 700 million. And it's really CMBS execution. Yeah. But you go to the market and you can get more flexibility under the SASB structure. So you can pick a certain date to prepay the deal. You have more prepayment flexibility. You, you may be pushing different leverages. So you go to these large banks and they price a debt structure for you to go get this. And some of these SASBs are 75 to 78 on the lower and probably 72% leverage yeah. in the market with an all-in rate of low two. So uh, right now, so that's great execution for high leverage, higher yield type buyers, especially guys that are looking to be in and out of stuff in a three, five, seven year period. Got it. Okay. As far as uh, DFW versus Houston, what are like the main differences in our two markets? I get asked that all the time. Uh, I mean, 
I got to be careful because Trent may get mad at us. But <laughs> no, I mean, Houston. Trent, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> Houston's historically been a little bit more cyclical, a little bit more tied to the oil and gas. You have some, you have more low coverage oil and gas type facilities in that market. Yeah. It hasn't been as much of a national e-commerce distribution hub as Dallas has been historically. There's more and more product on the retail and 3PL side that's continue to come to Houston just because population is getting so big in the kind of Texas triangle that more yeah. products going to have to come through it. But Dallas has always been the dominant national and regional distribution hub. So we historically have gotten a lot bigger deals, more 500, more million square footers, million fives, those type of deals come to a market like Dallas. So you see more regional and national flow of goods through Dallas and Houston. Houston's a little bit more of a, a local to regional type distribution market. But what about with the port? Yeah, the, the port's really more of liquid natural gas. Yeah. It's an outbound port with resin pellets with all the production going on down there. So you don't get a lot of the commodities and goods coming through the Houston ship channel. Most of our product in Texas still comes LA Long Beach and that comes through BNSF and that's through the big intermodal up in Alliance. So going back to, okay, so going back to DFW are the big, like how, how big of an impact is DFW airport on like the industrial market or the intermodal at Alliance? Are those like two of the biggest drivers? Is there something else that makes DFW a bigger hub besides just population growth and employment well i mean those are obviously the first two but i mean we we have two big intermodals between the up in south dallas and the bnsf up in alliance yep. which are great intermodals the up is a little bit more of a north south bnsf a little bit more east west into la long beach and then you have alliance airport you have dfw airport so you have really good connectivity to all the different transportation nodes you also get a lot of product that comes out of mexico up through dallas and distribute nationally so it's not one thing and there's tenants that use some of it you look at alliance i bet probably 30 to 40 percent of the tenants in alliance actually utilize the intermodal to some degree but it's a quality of life up there it's a lot of new product there's a lot of large fortune 500 so it's easy for these corporate tenor rep guys to understand why they want to be in alliance it's off 35w it's got a lot of positives to it so not all of them are specifically focused on being right next to the uh, intermodal and alliance so it doesn't drive all their decision making factors but it plays a small role in a lot of it okay all right i have one more question on uh well maybe a few more but if interest rates start to go up how does that change what i should be thinking about as an owner what y'all are thinking about as brokers I mean, a lot of our guys are low leverage buyers, so it's going to hurt a certain portion of the market for sure. But obviously, if if rates start to go up, I think we're probably going to see better growth in rent on that side of it. So you may just see more appreciation come from overall rent growth than being in a low kind of exit yield environment yep. on these deals. So I still see values going up long term, even if rates continue to go up. I think it'll just be more associated with rent growth and it will be just a continued kind of low cap environment. Yep. I, I think we won't see major movement anytime soon, but I don't need to be predicting anything. I don't know, we've been <laughs> Predict where interest rates will be 10 years and I'll let you get off this podcast. Um, all right. Well, we will, we'll, we'll ask you just a couple questions about kind of getting in the business, but I asked a lot of folks, especially the junior folks, like, you know, what would you want to hear from them? If you are getting in the industry today, what's the playbook to become really successful? And you guys have already kind of touched on it throughout, but 
what, what, how, how are you successful in this industry? I mean, I said it earlier, it's knowledge, experience, exposure is what you have to focus on. So what on. is he like? So exposure is the best thing you can do as a young guy. So just yeah. go get in front of people. Get yep. in front of Knock people. Knock on doors, interview, talk to as many people as humanly possible and opportunities are going to pop up. And it may take a while to find a gig, but just be persistent. Yep. And so, and once you have that opportunity, it's, it's more focused on getting an opportunity where you're going to go get at bats, exposure to deal flow, and getting with the right team is the two biggest things to focus on as a young person. Okay? That's exactly right. Reps. That's the experience. Yep. Um, I mean, you just have to find someone. It doesn't matter if this is your dream job or the job you're, you're going to be there in two years. I've seen professionals that have been in companies that are toxic, but they have unbelievable reps and now they've started their own gig after three years within the business and they're extremely successful so it's all about reps and gaining that knowledge and what you do with that is 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 the next step yeah, because there's there's a lot of facets to real estate outside of just brokerage or buying deals there's, there's asset management there's portfolio management there's all these different things there's fundraising there's different avenues you can go down as long as you have a base and it's building that base. Yeah. It is funny though, when you're talking to these people going out of school now and what do you want to do within the real estate side of the business? Everyone says industrial right now. I know. <laughs> well, going, when did that change? In the last like three, like industrial is not no sexy idea. for a long time. No, it was, probably the last four to five years. I feel like everybody's kind of shifted, but I tell people all the time is if you're a young person getting the business, go work retail. There's less people focused on retail right now. Retail's not going away. Yeah. It's just evolving is the biggest thing. And there's always going to be centers that people are going to go spend time in with. We're social people as human beings. So there's less competition in that space right now. And there's less people getting into it. And you look at a lot of the brokers or the owners and they're starting to age out of the retail business. So go find a niche and just grow in that niche and maybe don't go to the path of, path of least resistance. Yeah. Dustin just doesn't want to take those calls. So he just he passes them <laughs> to the retail guys right now. <laughs> All right. What is most exciting to y'all about industrial over the next 10 years? And this goes back to like, is there a certain statistic that you're watching or point of data? Like what is, you could also make the case that like, it's been a great run. We're doing great. But like, what keeps you super excited about where we're headed? I know I'm excited as hell about it, but from y'all's point of view, Give me some uh, data on why things are still progressing in a nice manner. Well, I mean, I think the business is evolving, right? So these facilities are getting more complicated than they've ever been. I mean, they, like, what does that even mean? Like we used to call, oh, I used to just call them big dumb boxes, right? They were just racks of stored equipment and people would pull them equipment off on a forklift, load a truck, ship it in and out. Yeah. Now, these things are high-tech, automated, sophisticated facilities. So you can see more and more evolution in these buildings. So does that mean they're getting deeper? Does that mean the overall layout has to change? Does that mean the power capacity, floor loads, clear heights, all this stuff is evolving. It's layouts of these facilities with queuing lanes, full drives around, different things like that. You start layering in like kind of truck mirroring, which is, you know, the lead truck with a driver in it, another truck following it. There's going to be more trailers flowing through some of these facilities. So the business is going to continue to evolve. I mean, if you look at like an AMZL facility, I would have never thought we'd be selling buildings in Dallas with, you know, 
$30 type rents, but that's just a function of what those facilities are. And, you know, those have been around. FedEx was kind of an early evolver in kind of the terminal facility. But that's the thing that excites me. We're kind of just real estate nerds. So we yeah. get excited about trying to figure out the next trends and evolutions. And we love sitting down with our clients and helping them think through pros and cons of either stuff they're acquiring or stuff they're about to build and how they can help maximize all these different items. Yeah. It will be interesting to just see what some of these 1950s, 60s, 70s vintage buildings yep. end up looking like in yeah. the next 10 years. Has there been anything like you've seen like a conversion or something cool that's like hasn't happened nationally, but maybe you've seen one group do it and you're like, damn, this could be a needle I mean, mover. we've seen we've seen pro lodges here locally tear down some buildings and build industrial. Um, here, we just have had enough land where you're still able to build. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the multi-story industrial, it is here in full force in the coastal markets. Yeah. Um, Dallas hasn't gotten there yet. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting just to see what happens with some of these older, older but buildings. You got to look to also over to Europe and Asia pack. I mean, there are a lot more technology driven and advanced than we are on the really cold, yeah mm -hmm. on the cold storage side multi-story warehouses have been over there forever so they operate a lot tighter efficiencies smaller sites more expensive sites so they usually end up driving a lot of the evolution that comes to america because they're more land constrained and things are more expensive in those markets is that why the Europeans can take off work early and have long vacations <laughs> and everything? Because everything's so much more efficient. They're, uh, they're doing something yeah, right. Yeah. Apparently so. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you very much for uh, for joining me today. This is awesome. I uh, really respect our relationship and appreciate you sitting down with me for an hour. Well, thank you. Yeah, this thanks, has been Chris. fun. Yeah. All right. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.